to the podcast, Jesus Has Left the Building, where we talk with people all over the nation, leading creative, outside the box, I mean, outside the church building, ministries that inspire and engage us. And we talk with people about why they have decided to create new and transforming ministries, especially during times such as these. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast where ministers, writers, activists, and church leaders have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Today's episode, The Love Gap, is the final of the first season of Jesus Has Left the Building, and we feature two amazing guests. Drew Hart is an author, activist, and professor in theology in the Bible and Religion Department at Messiah University. He is also the author of the book, Who Will Be a Witness, that has been guiding our first season of this podcast. Reverend Dr. John Dorhauer, the General President of the United Church of Christ, is also with us. He is on a mission to make the UCC vital and relevant. Using the last three chapters of Who Will Be a Witness as a guide, we will focus on redistribution of resources, the pillars that hold up systematic injustices, and diverse Christian perspectives and responsibilities. Welcome, I'm Marta Fioriti, and I'm the pastor of Black Forest Community Church, an open and affirming congregation of the United Church of Christ. And I am Mandy Todd, Director of Worship and Arts at Black Forest Community Church, and Marta and I are your hosts for this, our final episode of Season 1 of Jesus Has Left the Building, our podcast um, and our worship offering this fall for Black Forest Community Church. Today we are excited to be joined by both Reverend Dr. John Dorhauer and at a separate time, Reverend Dr. Drew Hart. We are definitely going out with a bang. Woohoo! We will hear from John and Drew in just a minute, but first let's listen to our scripture text and something about chapters 7 through 9. In these last three chapters, which are strung together nicely, Drew talks about the redistribution of resources and the church's responsibility around this structure. I think that we have done some really good things here at Black Forest Community Church with redistribution of resources and sharing um, of ourselves this fall. Mm -hmm. We have um, built strong relationships across divides. Um, and so I was thinking about um, a couple of things with the way that Christians, particularly in this time and season and place, are um, are responding to some of the things that are going on in the world. And I was talking with another Christian who is from a completely different tradition than we are. And um, she was talking about how she understood the gospel. And I was explaining to her how I understood the gospel and how our church might in unfolding God's kingdom and heaven on earth. And I was describing what that looked like and um, and how that meant sharing with each other and working together and um, being in community. And her response to me was, well, who's going to pay for that? And I didn't respond in that moment 
I just let it sit there um, and we just ended up talking about other things. But later I thought, well, who is going to pay for that? And I thought, we, we are going to pay for that. That is a really big vision and um, a strong mission to go forth. But I think that that is sort of what I think that is our responsibility as the church and as Christians. Um, so that is a story that made me think about these chapters in redistrib redistributing resources and right. wealth. Yeah. In chapter seven, Drew Hart talks about the principles of nonviolence and the pillars that hold up our communal structures with the most powerful people um, who we won't name and and organizations and businesses and all of those things at the top. And often we want to go right after the people in power, the people at the top. But what would what would happen if we started to undo some of those pieces, those structures that are holding up those people? Um, kind of like the game Jenga, so that those pillars begin to crumble, so that the focus is no longer on an individual at the top, but rather on the systems that are holding that person up. And then in chapter nine, um, Drew talks about the love gap, which we've chosen as the, the title for this episode. It's the gap between who we say we love and then how we truly live out that love. Sometimes that those, those ideas touch and sometimes there's a wide gap mm -hmm. in between the way we live out our love. It means um, being in relationship with the other and sometimes that's really uncomfortable. Yeah, I just wanted to say on page 313 in Who Will Be a Witness, Drew speaks about um, how different groups of Christians respond to these ideas. Um, some um, are really pushing to in, um, institute Christian laws and policies, and while others are really thinking um, about our responsibility to love our neighbor. Right, right. So our scripture text today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need in order that there may be a fair balance balance. That is a scripture text that talks about this idea of redistribution and that gap. 
So as always, each week we have a ritual that we will be doing together at the end of this episode, and we want to prepare you for that. This week, our um, seminarian intern, Sylvia Canty, came up with some ideas, and I just decided to use all of them <laughs> um, because I think that we're at the end, and so why not? We're going out with a bang. We are going out with a bang. So you can um, go and grab one of these three items or all three of them. So you can go and get a picture of a loved one or you can go and get your special note card or a stationery or you can go and get a canned good. So if you wanna push pause and take a minute to go get those things, that this is the time to do it so you can be ready at the end. Welcome to Drew Hart. We are so thrilled to have you in this space. Um, in this final episode of the first season of Jesus Has Left the Building, we have had the most incredible time um, really diving into your latest book, Who Will Be a Witness. Um, it has been really engaging and energizing for us to study these chapters one by one and to discuss um, some of those core concepts that you bring up with some guests who have experience with your work and some who don't, um, people from all across the nation. Um, it's just really been a, um, a beautiful fall for us. And we are so grateful to you for um, helping guide us through um, that this season and especially for being here today in our final episode this season. Oh, thank you, yeah. <clears throat> I'm just excited about this conversation and I'm just blown away by all that you guys have been organizing your leadership around this is just powerful and so I'm just glad to I'm excited to be at the table and conversing with you too. So we mostly like really just want to hear hear from you. Um, so, you know, we're tired. And so we we know that you have and I'm sure you are too, but we know you have all kinds of things to share. And so can you like just briefly, you know, tell us what what the launch of this book has done this fall? Because it just came out in September. So how's that been? How's that been going? What's that been like? Do you have any cool stories around it? Um, um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it's hard for me to answer. I feel like I've been so busy this semester um, teaching and just uh, I feel like I'm running around with a, my head cut off like a chicken. But um, so but but there's been really beautiful responses that I've engaged with. Certainly, um, I think you guys know already that, you know, so the Inverse community, we've been reading um, uh, Who Will Be a Witness together. And um, those conversations have just been powerful, beautiful. And it even sparks, like we, in our online group, like there was someone who had um, uh, just a financial need in our group and like, over like $20,000 were like, mm -hmm. you know, came up in like hours. It was just amazing, you know, and, and some of it was just out of outflow of what we had been reading, what that means to live that out, even in a virtual community. So, um, so yeah, there's lots of really cool stories like that. Um, I've got, I've been getting tons of emails from pastors and leaders and individuals who are reading it. Um, I love to hear, you know, um, groups and churches actually reading collectively together, because that's how I always, you know, not that you can control how people read it, but that's how I would love to have more people engage it in that way. Um, the Mennonite Church USA, somebody, there was an anonymous donor that 
paid for um, a copy of my book to all the credentialed ministers in the denomination. Um, oh just my kind gosh, of, yeah, I love so, that. So it just kind of showed up on everyone's door. So just really cool stuff. Um, yeah, so it's been exciting to just see it sparking hope. I know so many, I have a couple friends who are humanists um, who walked away from the faith and saying like, this is drawing them in. They're not committing to anything, but they're saying like, you know, this is the kind of Jesus that they, they love. And so, you know, that warms my heart. Um, to hear that kind of um, response to my work and that folks have been taking it seriously. But but I'm really blown away by you two and just, I mean, um, what you guys have organized is really awesome and putting together a whole podcast series. Um, there's a, uh, if, at least with Trouble I've seen in this one, um, and it's always women pastors that have seemed to just do some extra creative, really thoughtful. It's just been moving for me to see how that plays out. And so I'm just grateful for um, the work that you guys have been doing. Thank you. Um, so one of the things I just have to, it's not part of our questions, but um, which I always do. Um, I do. I, because I do, I think the book has um, an interesting intersection of um you know, both this really sort of progressive theological grounding um, and this action, right? Like, so, um, but the thing that I, I want you to speak to, and, and it came up um, some in these last three chapters, but I, I wanted to, you to speak to it because in like our progressive liberal traditions, like the United Church of Christ, um, which I think is a little bit different from your tradition in, in, in some ways, um, there's this whole thing around toxic charity, right? Um, have you, do you know what, what I'm talking about with that sort of, um, that philosophy? And um, and so I think what it's happened in, in many of our contexts is that it's gone all to the head and, and then less to the heart. And so um, I guess I would ask, like, what would be your first thought in balancing that, both having, sort of the knowledge and the intellect around why you're doing this and then also doing it, right? Or the other thing that happens is that only churches will do it and then they won't think about it and they won't be in relationship yeah. and they won't, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. this really hard balance. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, some of those tensions, I probably don't have all of those tensions, but I see them. And some of it is probably because of the particular communities that I was, I mean, I grew up in a black church where, mm -hmm. you know, you bring your whole, you bring yourself to everything, right? And so it was never a head versus heart issue. Um, now, I would say like our community that I was raised in, you know, the level of academic inquiry around some of these subjects wouldn't have been as significant, maybe. So you couldn't do like, we couldn't have done, it's sad to say, my own book study in my home church, probably. Like there would have been individuals, but there would have been a lot to ask of the community to engage in a book like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the, you know, how can we, for some communities, how do we stretch the, you know, conversations? And sometimes it's also about the medium, right? Um, which is why I'm grateful that the book, that we have like a um, audiobook for this book as well, mm -hmm. just the medium to make it more accessible for different folks. Not everyone's going to read a book. Right. Um, but, but, you know, you're right. I think um, there are churches, I know many churches, I've been to many churches where, you know, they would love to just do ongoing book studies and never stop doing book studies and just that's all, that, that's the work, right? That's it. <laughs> just, we, we read the book, we talk about it, 
you know, we, you know, uh, feel, you know, more educated and enlightened. And then, and then you do that again and again and again and again. And, and so it's this kind of like hoarding, right, of knowledge um, that is disconnected from one's being and one's, um, you know, emotions, internal life, all of that, as well as then the gap, as you mentioned, between, um, you know, action and, um, and, you know, um, reflection, right? I think that it can be dangerous whether, um, so I'm at a church right now where I think the natural inclination of the church is to be doers, right? Oh yeah, mm -hmm. we're going to do service and justice. Oh yeah, let's yep. uh, I got it. Like, oh, let's slow down a little bit, right? Which is not my normal, that's not usually the role I'm playing, but I'm like, all right, let's, we need, um, we need to do some more self-reflection and some self-examination in the process, right? And it's not one mm -hmm. or the other. It's not stop one to do the other. It's mm -hmm. simultaneous um, mm -hmm. and that they feed into each other. I mean, that's the whole idea around praxis is, is that mm -hmm. these two things feed into each other. So as we're acting, we're reflecting on our acting and learning and growing mm -hmm. and doing self-examination and getting better practices and seeing more. And it makes more sense while you're doing it than if you're sitting in the chair, just mm -hmm. uh, hypothesizing, right? About mm -hmm. what you're thinking about. So yeah, I think that um, that all of those are really important and churches ought to do an assessment of what our own inclinations are. Mm -hmm. Every church has its own you know, struggle and, yes. and think about how we can marry these two practices together, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Marry the two practices right. together. That's that's what I think the key is. Um, well, you already talked about this a little bit, but do you have any specific hopes for this book long term? I mean, I think like your hope of like every, you know, credentialed Mennonite <laughs> getting the book <laughs> feels like a win. Feels <laughs> like a win. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, uh, you know, I, I you know, I mean, of course, you know, you'd love for like every Christian to read the book. Of course, that's, you know, not realistic. But um, but I do, you know, I do hope that, you know, there's enough churches that have been awakening, right? I mean, we always hear about, you know, the 81% and the folks that are resistant and all that stuff. All right, that's fine. That that exists. I acknowledge that. Um, but there there also has been a significant amount of congregations that have been awakening and deepening commitments. Um, my church, I mean, my church is already had commitments around racism, things like that. But in this past summer alone, it deepened its commitments even more. And we had some even harder conversations mm. and a lot has been coming out of that. And so I think that um, I'm, my hope is that my book can play a role in folks that maybe have read books like my first one, like Trouble I've Seen. And there's so many other equivalents to that, mm -hmm. um, but that want to go deeper and think about, you know, how does discipleship fit into this and how you know the just undomesticated Jesus getting the vision of, of Jesus in that way getting a sense of our history I don't think many Christians recognize the role that the church has played um, in creating so much devastation around the world yes. right and so I think we need to grapple with that and sit with that and know some of our history where we came from to grapple with the practices of the church internally in terms of power dynamics and the way you know all, all those kind of practices um, but I do hope it also opens us our imagination up for our political imagination for how we can engage in our society, right? So that there are other options. I know we just got through this electoral process. In fact, no, we can't say we even got over it yet. We're, we're hoping to get through this process, but, but that there are other ways of engaging as well. And I think that for congregations to not cut off all the other channels available to us are really important. And so, um, yeah, my, my hope is that it just sparks um, something in congregations. It's a starting point 
for them to go deeper and to find the different avenues and what's possible in their own neighborhoods. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's, I guess my hope is that, that could, it could facilitate and be a resource for making that happen better. Yeah, so how unbelievably timely, especially 789, to yeah. what's happened in the last six months. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> like that's kind, it's kind of amazing um, yeah. that you you know the wealth, the politics, and the I mean like all like right there in a row. Um, did you write that before June? Oh, well before. Well, oh, well isn't before. Isn't that amazing? Um, yeah. Because all this stuff has been happening for such a long time. Um, so could you talk a little bit? Can you just share? I know. I'm sorry. I know. But we have him here. So like, um, so um, can you share a little bit about what your congregation is doing and how they're deepening into the racism? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So our church, I, I attend a church that is like over 100 years old. It's actually... Uh, um, in the Church of the Brethren. So it's Harrisburg First Church of the Brethren. I've never been a part of the denomination before. So, so it's kind of new to me as well. I mean, I know things. It's not, it's an Anabaptist denomination. Uh, we have a black uh, female pastor. In fact, she's going to be retiring very soon. So we're going to be um, trying to figure out what's next in terms of leadership for our church. But um, a multiracial church, socioeconomically diverse in the, in the hood of, of Allison Hill here in Harrisburg. And... Um, and the community um, has always, it's very community oriented. I mean, we have two um, nonprofits, uh, community development associations. One is BHA, which serves like women and children experiencing homelessness. And it's a really powerful. I mean, we've bought up so many buildings, just, just to house. Mm. It's a holistic ministry approach in terms of um, just walking with and journeying with uh, women in the in midst of crisis and um, trauma-informed. It's just really beautiful, the work that they've been doing. And then another program, the Satyagraha program that through BCMP that helps uh, youth in particular um, learn nonviolent skills and breaking cycles of violence in the community because of gun violence and stuff like that. So anyway, there's stuff that we've been doing for a very mm -hmm. long time. Um, but there's also, at least in me coming there, like there's things that hadn't been named also. Um, and so like, you know, you walk into our church, we almost didn't end up staying at our church because when we first walked in, the first thing that we saw was white Jesus is everywhere. This old sanctuary, right? We're like, oh no, this ain't gonna work for us. Especially the one, there's this one white Jesus that just, it's like super white. Like this is like, <laughs> this is like beyond normal white Jesus, you know? And it's actually, it, it, it is, it's like a presence in the sanctuary um, in a wow. different kind of way. It's actually troubling. Um, and so we immediately, I mean, I can't help myself. So I'm talking about that with pastors and so like, this is a problem. And at first people got very defensive, you know, people get uncomfortable. Right. Um, yeah. But you now, I mean, they, now everyone's cool. I mean, we're actually having some really good conversations about how to replace them. And um, so there's actually multiple white Jesuses. It's a little scary, but, <laughs> but so how much money it's going to cost. They've done. So anyway, that's little things and stuff. But we've also just... Um, over the summer in particular, um, just made some commitments around ongoing um, education. So it's like intentional. Um, so we're gonna just do ongoing education as it relates to white supremacy and anti-black racism in particular um, for our education, because our community, again, they're folks that it's a multiracial church and a lot of the white folks in particular, they're good folks. They are committed in some sense, but they like, 
put no effort into the education, self-education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it makes it hard for the white people to be able to do the white work that's needed in our own community um, and to be aware of certain, their own problems and issues that they're bringing to the table instead of just seeing the problem is out there. And so, you know, we're committed to, again, we have deepened our commitments to organizing work. Again, there was already folks involved in some of that, but as a whole church to say, we are going to rally in particular around public education funding because of the racist way that it gets, mm. uh, which mm-hmm. I talk about in the book, right? Yep. So that's mm-hmm. one of the things mm-hmm. that that the church um, just committed to um, undergoing that this is going to be like a central uh, concern for the church, that we're going to be a part of that movement here in Pennsylvania to address that. Um yeah, so there's that kind of stuff. It's deepening. There's a lot of folks that already are committed. There are folks that are reading and learning and stuff, but there's a lot of folks that have not been, who I think um, if we get in and collaborate together, I think we can do even more work, both internally and externally in our neighborhood. So, yeah. Nice. That's, That's so great. I know. It is so great. Yeah. So, now it's Mandy's turn. Uh, yeah, no, turn. Um, which we've already kind of, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we've talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to ask it anyway and see. Um, see what comes up. So um, the the final question that we have asked our guests um, on our, our podcast this season um, has been to consider and kind of t- talk to us about a concrete practice um, that they would offer up to individuals or to communities uh, during this time, this time of the pandemic, this time of um, racial awakening this time of this tricky election that as you mentioned we are kind of on the other side of but not actually really so we're still in the midst of all that we've always called it the tricky tricky, election and um it has been like it has been such a cool thing like it just i think it actually just came to marta like right before our first guest it wasn't Mm -hmm. even because she always goes off script it wasn't even a planned thing but she asked our first guest um, who are doing this amazing theater ministry in Jack, in uh, Orlando, Florida. So it went well with the socio-political chapter. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and then we were like, oh my gosh, that was brilliant. Let's do that for everyone. So um, this, you know, concrete practice. But um, you you bring up, you talk a lot about the Jubilee ethic, in, um, especially in Chapter 7. Um, yeah. But this idea of redistri- re- redri- redistribution is really... Um, key in in these, yeah. I think, really the last chapters. Um, so we're wondering if we can kind of combine this into like talk to us about a concrete practice. Um, the average, remember, the average congregant. So right. that's what we wanted right. to be able right. to do was like be right. able to give just right. anybody right. who was like, listening. What does it mean to have a concrete practice around this jubilee ethic and this redistribution? Um, for the average listener and then maybe also if you can think of something like what does that look for like for a congregation a congregation like ours that's um smallish and um you know we are in this um sea of conservative evangelical churches that are around us in our community and we're kind of this little um more progressive liberal community you know, surrounded by Northern Cal- Colorado Springs is kind of Bible beltish. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so like maybe two of those, right? A concrete practice for individuals and a concrete practice for um, this 
totally hypothetical congregation in the world? Yeah, um, yeah, there's so many different ways to go with this. Let's see. Um, for individuals, I mean, I guess the the biggest thing to at least assess in terms of one's individual life is to think about, you know, their own flow of money, right? I mean, like, let's map it out. Where is the money flowing? In what ways? I guess one of the challenges historically um, is that white people have not spent money or and, and not invested money in black communities right in black businesses and black people um and so i think doing an honest assessment of the flow and committing to uh, redistributing that flow of money right um i think that that is just a, a simple but really important totally. thing. i mean yes th there's a history of like for example um i mentioned in that chapter um the book the color of um, money and and what that book actually is concerned one of the like the threads that runs through the book is looking at the project of black banks and why they always failed right that's it's an interesting thing like looking mm -hmm. at why did black banking always fail and her argument is it could never work because it was never participating in the mainstream economy it was poor black people putting all their money together that's not how banking they just can't thrive under those conditions um, and so when I think it went for individuals to think about their own money, like not only just in terms of where they bank, but, but just in general, um, how do we, um, invest and share and participate in the lives of black people in a way that let's be honest, like white people just have not done right. Um, as a wholesale. And so I think that that is maybe probably the starting point, but making a commitment, right. Looking at essentially yes. like. I'm going to, you know, from now on, all my books are going to be bought through black bookstores and right. we're going to intentionally um, prioritize using these black restaurants and at our homes, we're going to hire black contractors and so forth, right? Like, I think that's, um, that there's a whole variety of different ways that that can be fleshed out. Yeah, um, there's actually, real quick, there's this one church in Denver, a small UCC church that is putting a list together of yeah. all like distribution centers that are all yeah. um, black owned and small businesses in the area. Yeah, and we have a list in Colorado Springs too. Oh, where is I've it? I've seen um, it floating around on social media. So we'll put that in yeah, the that's a good idea. for the podcast. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that's good, that's good. That's something that this summer has just started to, you know, I mean, I've never seen a list for um, black owned businesses until this summer, you know, in our, in our area, so. Um, when you have that resource, it does, I mean, it makes it easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But then I think, you know, so much work is um, in terms of um, more significant change, the more communal it is, the more significant it is, right? And so I think like one of the things that um, we've brought up in our church, so we have a lot of uh, black youth in our congregation, very low socioeconomic, you know, they're just disadvantages all over the place, right? Um, and then you also have white folks, middle class and all that stuff in our congregations. And everyone feels fine, just the matter of fact that there's diversity, socioeconomic diversity, as if that's a good in and of itself. And I was things like, well, shouldn't we be trying to end the obstacles for folks? And so some of the things that we've suggested, and we're, and we're not experts in this, like this is not like my expertise, but we're trying to brainstorm, um, like what would it look like for us to create a program where, you know, we will pay for the down payments for people to get homes, you know, like, mm -hmm. like long-term things that will break people out of cycles and 
um, home ownership, you know, just uh, for black people in general is disproportionately low and certainly in our community it's very low. And those kind of things are game changers, right? And so what does it mean to put our money where our mouth is as a community um, to put money and ensure that, you know, um, to work, walk alongside our young folks and to invest in their futures like we would our own children, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that because they are our own children um, and that's the way it's gotta be seen, right? And I think that's when we um, are committed and show up for each other in that kind of way, I think that we can have more long-term impact. So that's just one way, right? Mm -hmm. I, again, there's so many different ways to be creative. And I think that congregations can figure out what that is. But I think that we've got to, there should be some redistribution of wealth happening within the life of the congregation itself. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Not just good enough to want that in the broader society. We've got to practice that as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. That's great, actually. Yep. Um, and I think that, um, you know, it's interesting, again, back to, you know, our the whole idea of us being progressive and liberal is that I think often um, so many of us are look, looking at like outside of ourselves, like out in the wider community. And that feels super hard and daunting. But if we can just say, hey, we're going to, this is what we're going to practice right in this space. And we're going to do it to the best that we can. Like that's actually doable. Yeah. I can do it um, in this with th these hundred people, right? I can right. make that happen. I can shift structures to be just and, um, you know, do ministry I, in a way that is equitable. Right. And I think that idea of practice, like it is a practice, right? We're, you, you don't have all the answers. You're not going to get it right every time. But we're taking those steps and we're practicing it together because if we pra practice it together in community, in this safe community, and then we start to take that out into the other ways, you know, I mean, we're, yeah. we're talking a lot about bubbles these days with COVID. Like if you take that to your next bubble in a positive way, um, you know, you can spread that love, mm -hmm. right? You can spread That's that it. redistribution. That's it. Yeah. That's it. You know, I just preached a sermon for my church. Um, I was a guest preacher for my for my own church. And um, and it was think about the first Corinthians 11, but it, the whole thing was discern the body, discern the block. And my whole thing is like, you know, Paul is chiding them about how they're practicing life together, right? They're, some are eaten and others are hungry, some getting drunk. Mm -hmm. um, and he's like, you're not really practicing it. But my whole thing is when we discern and we actually practice that together, that will shape how we go out, that we will mm -hmm. be able to discern the disparities mm -hmm. and we'll have something to offer the world mm -hmm. also. Um, and so we'll be more attuned um, to, to offer something more meaningful when we go out because of how we've gathered together. Yeah. Welcome, John. We are so excited to have you here in this space with us today. Um, this is our final episode of um, this season of our podcast. And we are grateful for your presence with us um, here today and within our denomination as a whole. Thank you. Um, we are really excited to hear your perspective from the United Church of Christ. Um, you have eyes and ears um, across really the whole nation and what people are doing, especially during this time. Um, so we're really excited to hear um, what you have to share with us today. So the first question um, is kind of stemming from Drew Hart's book, Who Will Be a Witness? Um, and we are focusing on these last three chapters, um, seven, eight, and nine. Um, but he talks about this idea of jubilee ethics, 
um, a redistribution of wealth and resources, um, both, you know, sort of in the church as, as a community and the way we structure our ministry together. Um, so we were sort of thinking about it during this time and place. We are in a very specific and challenging season right now of COVID, um, racial inequalities and, um, which, you know, stems into a whole variety of other um, massive um, inequalities around economics. Um, And so what do you see the United Church of Christ um, as a whole? Um, In this time, how are they, how are we embracing Jubilee ethic um, and having an eye towards justice? This is a very important question, and you're so kind to welcome me, Mandy and Marta. I'm grateful for this invitation and happy to be here. Uh, This really gets at the heart of the matter, um, both in terms of what it means to be the body of Christ um, and what it means to be white in America in the 21st century. It it really is a question about who's going to make decisions about the fair and equitable distribution of wealth. In terms of what the United Church of Christ is doing, um, we've recently uh, did a news story about this. Uh, We have seven companies that we are interviewing as we speak right now, uh, whom we are seeking out. One of those companies we will hire to do a thorough race audit of the national setting of the United Church of Christ. And among the many things that we will explore as we're trying to uncover our continued possessive investment in whiteness is what is it about our articulation and expression of ourselves that continues to bear an adherence to white identity and not just white identity in general, but white identity in the context of white power, white privilege, and white supremacy. So we're going to be reading through historic documents, governing documents, uh, hiring practices, uh, norms and behaviors that we accept as normal, we'll interrogate our normal. And we will imagine that that will take some time. At the same time, and I was just a part of a group of leaders that met on this earlier this week, we are looking at what a serious effort to compose and issue an apology around slavery and racism as a part of the white legacy, what that would look like. We're not sure that we will have an apology ready to, um, to issue by General Senate next year. That would be an outside goal. It's eight months away, and I can't imagine that we will complete that task in the time, given everything that will be required of us for that apology to have meaning. But at the very least, we will be announcing at the 2021 Synod that the work is underway, and we fully intend by by Synod 2023 to have that apology ready and issued. So we're doing, uh, we're doing a race audit where we built the task force to begin the process of articulating an apology. And then the other thing I would say on the, on the other side of the apology, we, when issuing the apology, we, will not, we do not anticipate asking for forgiveness. That would be premature. What we will then do is open up a conversation about what commitment to reparations looks like. Um, and reparations broadly is about repairing the damage. 
And that's, while it's much broader than just paying an economic price, it, it, it certainly is not repairing the damage without that. And it can't be seen as just a penalty we pay for crimes committed. It, it has to be seen as an honest commitment to answer the question, what would the fair distribution of resources that we claim uh, through white privilege, white power, and white supremacy look like? And we can talk about that broadly as a culture in America, but our responsibility in the United Church of Christ would be to ask, what does that mean for us? Mm -hmm. And for me in particular, what does that mean for the national setting? Mm -hmm. We need that both to be an honest, authentic commitment to equity and a, a modeling for the rest of the United Church of Christ and for the United States of America as we know it. So all of that is unfolding right now in real time. And these are just things that we said we'd like to get to. We have already begun the process on all of that. Oh, that's super great. Can you, for like, you know, just the average listener out there, just sort of talk a little bit about what is a race audit? Like, what, is, sure. what does that actually mean? Yeah, so uh, an audit is bringing in an outside agent uh, to examine your resources, your assets. A race audit in particular is we would invite a company to come in and take a look at how our way of being is structured around our commitments to, to racial equity. And in a, in a race audit, there are many, many things you can look at. Um, and I'll talk not just about the national setting here, but also about a local church. What, what can a local church do in a race audit? One of the things you can do is in any of the property that you call your own, walk through the property and look at every picture on every wall and ask how many people of color, how many people that we attach color to as a defining identity are in those pictures and how many that we would recognize as white are in those pictures and, and what's the percentage? And is that percentage consistent with what you are saying as a people of faith about your commitments to racial equity. Look at the library, both if you have a library, the church's library, look at the pastor's library and note all of the authors. How many of those authors by percentage are white and how many are represent a different culture? Look at the either the website or if you have an, a newsletter where you put either pictures or graphics in and ask as you look at those graphics and audit them, what's the percentage of whiteness demonstrated here? Uh, you can go back and if you're a local church, you can look at sermon content or worship content and ask how many times in a service of worship did the question of race equity or conversation about white privilege uh, come up? You can take a look at the membership roles and do an audit around um, uh, the percentage of the, the membership that's white. You can ask historic questions. How many pastors in our past have been white? How many were even interviewed who weren't white? Um, All and none. <laughs> right, right. And the, the piece on pictures, which we started with, is a really important one because it's such a low bar 
when it comes to the questions of commitments to race, but it's often in entirely white communities, something that goes unseen. Our expectation is that whiteness is the norm. And so when whiteness is there, we just don't see it. But stepping back and taking that commitment and then saying, so let's say that all of your portrayals, and it's not just pictures, but look in particular at portrayals of Jesus or portrayals of the sacred, the deity. Um, we know historically that Jesus wasn't white and we have no idea what color to attach to God. And yet if every single picture on the wall shows God as white or Jesus as white, it means that we're willing to either invent something or lie about something in order to perpetuate the mythology that God and Jesus are white. And every child that's come through this building has spent their entire uh, year, formational years being told that whiteness attaches to the divinity, even when we know that it's not true. Um, so those are some of the things you can do in a race audit. Uh, one more thing I'll say real quick. Vendors, who do you purchase products from as a local church? Um, and whether it's bulletins, whether it's um, uh, cartridges to fill the, the copy machine, where do you bet? And ask yourself, how many of those are Black-owned businesses? Um, or how many of those are owned by marginalized communities of color? Um, that's another way, another piece you can do. So it, the, 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 the list is endless, but what you end up with in the end is an articulation, a, a metrical measurement of your, what I call possessive investment in whiteness. Um, so what's interesting about what you just said about pictures is in our last conversation with Drew, he just mentioned that when he was looking for a church, him and his wife, and he's a black man, um, he walked into his multicultural church and there are white Jesuses all over the all place. Over. And he's like, oh my gosh, we cannot do this. <laughs> um, but what it has instead done is he he is going to that church is that they are starting the conversation to the ideas that you are talking about. Um, I think that, you know, you said um, every ch child who's um, come through that church sees those white Jesuses and you don't, you don't even have to say it. I, it makes me think about, um, I have done a really, like I have made a really concerted effort to not use male language for God in our household. Um, but my children who are nine and six call God he as a default because it happens in other places. Um, right. They hear it. And so even though, you know, in our home and, and in our in our church community, we don't use that language, they they get it. And so there's no doubt that they're coming in and seeing the white Jesus and making those connections, you know, even completely right. unintentionally. That's right. So um, after you do the national office audit, will you put like a plan together for local churches to practice it? So that was, that's one question. And then the other one is, is that as you look at sort of, um, I mean, I know that, you know, the national offices also often inform us clergy about how to hire and, you know, um, and staffing structures and all of that. Will that all of that sort of be revised for a new day, a new time? So there's going to be a yes and a no answer to that. And even the yes answer to that is 
at this stage, um, it would it would be guesswork on my part because I have no idea where this audit is going to take us, and I shouldn't enter this with a preconceived notion of where it's going to take us. Mm -hmm. But I will say from the outset, we're not just doing this uh, for ourselves, and and we are, and that's important. That there's going to be an important outcome that we're committed to. But as the national setting, we are very aware that what we do um, is visible to the wider church. And so we do that with intentionality, purpose, and meaning. And we have every expectation that this is something that, that local churches will be able to adapt for their own needs. Um, and that what we learn from this is something that, again, isn't just for our benefit, but for the benefit of the wider church. So yes to all of that. Um, but again, it's it's hard to anticipate what that will be and how that gets communicated. And the other part of the no is we are the United Church of Christ and we prize the autonomy of the local church. Mm -hmm. So while we can model that, we can't prescribe it. Mm -hmm. um, and you have a much closer relationship as a local church with your association and its committee on ministry in terms of what guides your own pathway to authenticity and integrity in ministry mm -hmm. than you do to the national setting and that's entirely appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, in, in this podcast, Jesus has left the building. Um, in our first episode, um, we talked about um, a story of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and his friend, Ralph Abernathy. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're going to talk about that. I know, I know, it just came to me. <laughs> um, so his buddy, Ralph, um, that they, um, there was this moment of kind of like, what are we going to do around this uh, specific moments in Birmingham, Alabama? And um, Dr. During Holy Week. Yeah, yeah, during Holy Week. And Dr. King left this conversation and he came back with his blue jeans on. And um, it was this symbol that we're actually, we're gonna go get to work. We're gonna go outside of our um, spaces of um, worship, outside of our spaces of, you know, Holy Week and we're in our Sunday best. We're gonna put on our blue jeans and we're gonna go do some work outside of the church. And that has been our theme and our um, focus. And we have had um, some, some moments of real, um, joy and beauty, hearing the stories of people um, and ministries that are happening outside of the church building. Um, we heard from St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Orlando, Florida, who are doing an amazing theater ministry. And in the pandemic, um, while people are being laid off from work in the entertainment world, you know, Orlando um, is what's it called, the trifecta um, of performers. Um, they are feeding people every Tuesday, um, entertainers who are, who are unemployed. Um, we have heard from um, uh, Reverend Kendall Rothus and um, Reverend Aurelia Pratt, who um, started a preaching conference called Nevertheless She Preached that um, uh, Tracy Blackman <laughs> yeah. has been a part of, um, who are lifting up the voices of um, people on the margins who don't get to preach in a lot of spaces. And we here at Black Forest Community Church, um, over the course of the pandemic, 
we um, have been housing an immigrant family in our fellowship hall because we're not using that space. So why not open it up? Our amazing um, congregation created an apartment in our fellowship hall, and this family has a place to be um, as temporary housing while they're looking for somewhere else to be. And so we're really interested in what um, what have you seen with your eyes on um, the national setting on these local churches across our, our nation? Um, what what are some examples of other um, communities in the UCC who are doing this kind of work, really putting their blue jeans on and going going yeah. out? So I love everything you, you just described. Um, and on another time and another conversation, I want to hear so much more about your church, your congregation. Here's some of the things that I'm seeing. Let me lead with this. Our chaplains are incredibly dedicated people whose work goes largely unnoticed um, in the wider church. And if ever there was a time that they should be recognized for the extraordinary work that they are doing, it is, it is now. I remember interviewing one of our uh, chaplains early in this process um, and she had caught the coronavirus and was suffering from that. And I remember asking her how she felt about that because she got it because she was required to go in and do ministry in places where even families are not allowed anymore. And where the frontline workers are given uh, an array of PPE that protects them that chaplains don't have access to because on the scale, they're not as important. And I, I wanted to see what anger was there that she needed to express. And she just looked at me and said, John, this is what I was called to do. Mm-hmm. There was no anger, no rancor. And every understanding that when this was over and it was over for her, she went right back into that hospital, into those rooms. And this is happening over and over and over again with our chaplains. And we need to just take notice of that extraordinary work that they're doing. They're not only one of the the few people of compassionate contact with people who are spending days, if not weeks in an IC unit slowly dying of this disease, when even the family members can't be there. They're also the frontline caregivers to the, the, the health agents who are spending hour after hour after hour, day after day after day, trying to treat people who, whom they cannot heal. And their own collective grief around that needs tender care. And, and it's our chaplains that are doing that. So I wanna start with that. Um, some lighter things. There's a church in Seattle that its third week of going virtual had a family worshiping with them from Finland. Yeah, yeah. And weeks go by and this family's showing up every Sunday and the church gets a request from this family in Finland, can we join your church? Can we become members of your church? And as the church deliberated about that, they put their own question on the table. Well, when we receive them, can they serve on our council? Hmm. And imagine, you know, the weeks before, we would have never 
entertained that as a possibility, much right. then deliberated about the, the possible outcome of that. Um, I remember my fir the first Sunday that we all went virtual. I, I made a point of worshiping in six different time zones, one in mm. all of the time zones that we have here in the US. And I remember seeing some of the most sophisticated, nuanced, technologically advanced skills in an act of worship. And a pastor with about a dozen elderly people who had never been on a Zoom call and who every five minutes was apologizing because he had no idea what he was doing and was messing it up. And you had the old people talking about, what did he say? Can you hear me? Can you? And it was beautiful. Everything about it was beautiful. All of the experiences, and I, I finished with a service in Hawaii where two churches, one UCC, one right across the street, I don't, may have been Baptist, but they'd never gotten together before. And mm -hmm. on that Sunday, their staff was in the sanctuary with members of both churches uh, self quarantined at home and worshiping together with each other for the first nice. time. And that was beautiful. My favorite sort of snapshot of this experience was a pastor, a reformed pastor. You know, we got the ENR, we've got the congregational crisis. This is an old reformed church in central Pennsylvania, which is about as high church as the United Church of Christ gets, and about as sacramentally pure in terms of getting all of the rubrics right as you can get. And this pastor is standing on the front porch, this wooden front porch with trees around. And this couple is peeking out the door and he's got a mask on and he's holding a pole that's about 10 feet long. And on the end of that is the communion. He's <laughs> delivering home communion to the shut-ins of his church in a COVID world. Mm -hmm. And it was funny, it was beautiful, it was tender, it was poignant, and it was utterly apropos to a Jesus has left the building kind of way of being yeah. church. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it really summed it up for me. The, I'll do one more thing. The prayer support and unity that we have been getting from partners around the globe, and that can be a whole other conversation what do we do as the United Church of Christ in partnership with folk around the globe? It's an incredibly powerful, moving story. But those partnerships have been cultivated now over decades, and we are all suffering this together. And our prayerful exchanges with one another have been incredibly meaningful, and I'll describe only one of those. In the early weeks of the pandemic, I got a letter, a, a, a prayerful word from Nigel Uden, who was the, at the time the moderator of the Reformed Church of Great Britain. He had attended our General Synod the year before. I had been over to visit him. He's the pastor of the Reformed Church in Cambridge. Um, and we developed this rapport and this friendship. And knowing what we were now experiencing and that they had been living through themselves, he wrote me this word of encouragement and prayer, and I wrote back. And then he shared this story with me. It's about a young pastor in 1949 
who was extended a call to the Reformed Church in Coventry, England. This would have been right after the Second World War. And Coventry was the first city in England carpet bombed by the Germans. And a part of that meant the destruction of this cathedral style church where these people were worshiping. And the pastor had to decide, is this where my next call is? And he was, as he was deliberating that, one of the deacons wrote to him and shared these words. There is no change this church cannot endure so long as the gospel is preached and the kingdom of God is extended. Mm. And that was among one of the first things that I would read as this pandemic broke out. Mm -hmm. And it's instructive to all of us. And living this Jesus has left the building kind of way of being is another way of saying there is no change that we cannot endure so long as the gospel is preached and the kingdom of God is extended. Mm -hmm. And I've kept that with me throughout this, this whole process. And I've had the privilege of bearing witness to what a church getting out of the building can do. When it first happened, we were all scared to death. We're going to lose members. We're going to lose money. We're going to close. We're going to, and far from that, we've got people from around the world wanting to join us a family in Finland joining a church in Seattle. So I hope you've gone and grabbed one of the three items that we suggested at the beginning of this episode. If you haven't, then take a moment to go and do that. Our ritual this week is simple. And in the spirit of closing the love gap and in the spirit of this being Thanksgiving week, um, we invited you to either get um, a picture of a loved one that has um, been inspirational to you or um, your, your own stationery or a note card um, or a canned good. So what we're thinking is that we talked about practices this week. And so um, in some ways, these simple small rituals are practices uh, so we want you to take some food to a neighbor and, and share and redistribute your own pantry um, as a um, faith practice. Or you might want to write a note to someone who needs some kind words, some affirmations, a little bit of a blessing, um, someone that, um, you know, might need to hear from another person simply saying, how are you doing today? Or you might want to, during this holiday season, grab a family member or a close friend that you believe to always practice closing the gaps, the love gaps, and let their story be a blessing to you this week. And we'll close out this episode and this season with the final words of Drew's book, Who Will Be a Witness? This, uh, these words are found on page 363, and let these be a prayer. Love is not a magic wand that can guarantee a particular response from everyone. It doesn't work that way but it still remains the most powerful instrument for creating the possibility of radical deliverance of even oppressors. 
instead of perpetuating cycles of violence and harm. As the church pursues God's justice and deliverance, it must also take seriously the politics of love. Amen. Amen. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Find us on Facebook at Black Forest Community Church, United Church of Christ. And message us to learn how you can be a part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world. To support our work, search for Black Forest Community Church on Venmo to make a one-time donation or a regular commitment with as little as $1 a month. You'll get regular communications and updates about our stories. Thank you to all those people that support and listen. We could not do this without you. This is the end of our first season of Jesus Has Left the Building. Be sure to follow us on Facebook to know what's coming next.